0: Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. That's where we've taken up our study for the last few weeks, and we'll go through the end of August with it. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying chapter 3. So the Song of Songs, chapter 3, where Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, beginning in verse 1, Here is the bride. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. And I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it's the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords, an expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. So go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him. On the day of his wedding. On the day of the gladness of his heart. All right, Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray now that as we work our way through it, you would give your spirit. We believe that it is living and active and we pray that you would make the book your word to live and to act in us. We ask it for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, in a minor miracle, Jenny and I managed to go on a date this week. Thank you, Anna, for watching the kids. Uh, We headed out to the silos in Easley with some friends from seminary. And over dessert, we began to talk about the value for some of us of having some time to ourselves... I spoke of a time when I'd driven 900 miles from here to almost Boston, which is our home at the time, only to come up just short of home. Uh, I was hit by a snowfall along the way that landed me in a hotel in somewhere Connecticut. And I'd say that it was awful if it wasn't so wonderfully delightful. Uh, I like being alone. Some of you may know this about me. Uh, I like being alone. Not forever. Uh, But for a time, just to be in silence, to to be with my own thoughts, to be responsible for me to have a bed all to myself, uh, it it can, for me, be somewhat recouping, rejuvenating. As we conversed, uh, one of the wives interjected how unappealing uh, that would be to her, uh, how she greatly preferred to be tied at the hip with her Beloved. Everywhere he goes, that's where she wants to be. Now, obviously, there is a a sweet spot to be struck there between uh, the polarities of idolatrous independence and idolatrous dependence. Uh, But there is, I will say, I think a good kind of separation anxiety, if you will, that should be felt whenever the two made one are separated, whenever they are apart from one another, the the, the joined should be somewhat uncomfortable being disjointed. So, as we've seen in the Song of Songs, these two lovebirds have an actionable passion to be together. As the old movie line goes, they complete each other. And just so, they long to have And to hold each other in all circumstances, right? Sick, health, richer, poorer, all circumstances till death do us part. To be tied at the hip for life, which is the force really of our text today. And as it is, it becomes a path to having and holding a greatest longing for the greatest lover, Jesus, till death do us not part but meet face-to-face, okay? So again, two connected poems here, the first in verses one to five, which I've summarized in those wedding words, to have and to hold. And I trust you can see why, right? It's the end of a day, and she's gone to bed, the bride has gone to bed, and her beloved isn't where he's supposed to be. He's not home yet, so it appears she is now tossing and turning on her bed. I don't think she's dreaming. I know that maybe the little... uh, heading in your, in your Bible says, the bride's dream or whatever it is. I don't think she's dreaming here. I think she's just restless. I think she's just wondering in her mind, where is he? Until she just can't take it anymore. At which point, you see in verse 2, her mental seeking progresses to an all out and urgent search and rescue. She cares deeply about him being in his proper place at the proper time which happens to be in the bed beside her at that time. But he's not there. And so she has a kind of separation anxiety about her. And while anxiety is, is typically frowned upon, this anxiety is more like what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. If you remember that, he talks about his anxiety for all the churches. Right? The meaning there is that he loves those churches. He loves them, and thus he's deeply concerned for their their well-being, and that's how it is here with her. Her anxiety is actually indicative of her great love for her bridegroom. As when, without notice, I got caught up recently, can't remember exactly why, but I'm normally where I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed to be there. I got caught up recently, and then I get a phone call from my bride, from Jenny, and she's like, where are you? You're not where you're supposed to be. Are you okay? Don't do that to me. Right? So, a word here on the phrasing throughout this poem. Maybe you heard the repetition of it Him whom my soul loves. That's powerful language that we shouldn't just gloss over. That's not, I think I love him. You know? It's not. Listen, he's not much for conversation or intellectual stimulation, but girls, what a physique. Like, that's not what's going on here. As we'll get clearer, this is, at base, a spiritual love. It's the kind of thing that we ought to say about Jesus. We love the lover of our souls with our souls. Now, of course, as I'll say in a moment, the argument here is not at all for something like spousal worship. Um, It's not as some may need to hear to to put our spouses, much less our suitors, on the same level with Jesus. That kind of idolatry will devastate your soul, right? No one can fill uh, and satisfy your soul but Jesus. That's it, period. So to put that on anybody else will injure the both of you. So you need to be careful there, very careful there. Now, as the Bible would never teach or affirm that kind of idolatry, what this is is simply the recognition of what a Christ-loving soul will love for a spouse. So, dear ones, if you mean to marry, it is beyond critical that you resolve to bind yourself to another who likewise loves Jesus. To be united with one that your soul in its full pursuit of joy in Christ can still confidently and peaceably amen to love. You need to be looking for a spiritual match, just to be brief with it. You need to be looking for a spiritual match and I would advise you with all my heart never to settle there. Never to settle on that match. With grace... Be picky. Be picky. Far better to be graciously picky than to be consistently sorry in the aftermath. When it comes to courting and marrying, let Jesus be your glory. Let Jesus be your guide. Let Jesus be the one that you are in full pursuit of and let His Word, which details, outlines, Gives, gives life to a godly character, let his word be your guide in that. All that to say, the bride here, she has found him whom her soul loves. And yet, he is, in a way, lost. He's not where he's supposed to be. And so verse 2 again, she rises and she hops out of bed and does something really, really rather dangerous. But as a great lover, she is, her desperation to find him will not be put off by a little bit of danger. Now Brian, what are you talking about in terms of danger? What I'm talking about is verse 2 in light of passages like Genesis 19. You can go read Genesis 19 later this afternoon. It wasn't exactly there. The safest thing in the world for angels to be out and about the city squares at night. Still less this angel of a woman. Nevertheless, like the shepherd searching for that one lost sheep, like the woman who's searching for that one lost coin, or the father who's looking for that one lost prodigal son, or God searching for all his peoples out in the lanes and streets of the city, this bride is undeterred, right? She's like Liam Neeson in Taken, or pretty much anything that Liam Neeson is in, Okay? She fears nothing. She's sweeping the city here. She's sweeping the streets. She's sweeping the squares. Her life for her love. But the sad refrain in these first verses is what? I sought him, but I found him not. Rather, verse 3, she's first found. She's found first. While she's patrolling for him, the watchmen find her. And, bless God, it's while she's asking if they've seen her soulmate that she happens upon him. She finds him, verse 4. Scarcely had I passed them, she says, when I found him whom my soul loves. And what then did she do with him? I held him. And would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Note then she's not mad, she's glad, she's relieved. Right? Whatever the reason for being late, it's not to the doghouse for him, it's not to the couch, right? It's to home and to a shared bed. And don't think it's strange that it's her mother's marriage bed. May sound a little weird to us. That's not weird here in the Times. It's a cultural detail communicating a lineage of marital romance and probably, probably the sweet hope that attends making love, and that is by God's help, making babies. Okay? But the poetic emphasis is on the consummate joy of the united being reunited. Again. As I thought on that this week, here's what came to mind for me. There's coming a day when either Jenny or I will lose the other before this life's close. We'll be lost such that no amount of searching will find us in this world. For a time, one will be here, and the other, by God's grace, will be with the Lord in heaven. And as our love is great, right? Right, she said, she's shaking her head. I can see her, okay? There will be, I'm sure, a lot of separation anxiety. Even a longing to see each other again as soon as God sees fit. Um, I've known many an elderly spouse Now, who having lost their beloved for life, long for nothing more than the forge ahead after them into life eternal. In fact, I know of a 97-year-old brother who just this week departed this world for Christ a mere week or so after his beloved wife. Come to discover that it had always been his prayer. (laughs) And young ones, I've also lived long enough to have friends my age and younger, Lose their spouses. So not in their 90s, but in their 20s and in their 30s. And you're sitting there thinking, well, Brian, that is completely depressing. But here's where I'm going with all that. I find it an emotive. Maybe you just felt it. Hold them while you've got them. Hold them while you've got them. And don't let them go. Hold them tighter. Hold them longer. This marriage is temporary. This marriage is a momentary one. You go to Matthew 22 verse 30. Jesus himself is going to tell us that this kind of marriage, the marriage between myself and my bride, it does not last forever. It's for now. So don't get slack with it. Don't let anything make you a cold and disinterested spouse that's content with sort of this slow formation of neglectful detachment. So much love is lost in that kind of neglect. The time I have with Jenny is way too unpredictable. And even if it was a thousand years more that was granted to me, still too short a time to waste by any kind of distance between us. The vow I made to her before God and others was to have her and to hold her. Always. Till death do us part. And I mean to make good on that. One more thing then before the bride's second adjuration in the song, just while it's on our mind here. uh, Church, we we need to have an enduring ministry to sorrowing spouses. Uh, My grandmother, she lived not like a week after my grandfather had died, but 13 more years after my grandfather had passed. And I'll tell you, Uh, that can be a terribly lonely and spiritually disconcerting place to be. Uh, The grief for her over 13 years was incredibly unrelenting. And so we need to be unrelenting in holding those who have lost their hold on their loved ones. We need to be a steady store, a storage place of presence for them, of an ear that listens to them, of hearts that will delight to reminisce with them, of weeping when they're weeping, of praying for them, and ultimately always wanting to point them to the one who is going to hold them fast to the end. Well, to come to it, you see verse 5. You see verse 5 now? Having found her beloved... She looks again at those girls coming into the age of love, those daughters of Jerusalem, and she adjures them, same as chapter 2, verse 7, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now the reason, though, I think, is a little bit different here than in chapter 2, verse 7. In chapter 2, verse 7, it was more explicitly about, hey, wait on that romantic consummation. Wait for that. While here, though I think that is in view, it seems to be more about readiness to handle the kind of love that can put this kind of stress on you. Something that we need to be advising and adjuring young people especially, because that's who the song is addressing here, is a spiritual and emotional maturity for this kind of love. Parents, we really should be disallowing serial dating and all this kind of stuff in favor of stabilizing discipleship. Put it in their minds that love like this is a beautifully kindled fire with which they are not ready to cook until they have a well-developed blend of instruments and ingredients and instruction. Until they've prepared to cook as God judges it without being horribly messy with it or ultimately burned and scarred. Parents, we need to be giving our kids the Word of God. We cannot be letting the world fill in all of the categories for for sexual morality or immorality. We need to be giving them biblical wisdom on these things. We need to be telling them To wait it out. To wait it out. And young ones, listen. Don't let your souls be a playground for romantic immaturity. Guard your souls with your life. Fill them up with the love of Christ as much as you possibly can. Your desires may be good, but insofar then as they are good, they need to be all the more protected and patiently developed. If you lack that kind of development, you will, listen, you will, I've seen it, you will make deities out of dates. You will make idols out of individuals. You will make tragedy out of what is, in its right season, divinely terrific. To have and to hold has a season called marriage. See its beauty. And be glad to wait and prepare, if and as God wills, for that beauty. And thank God along the way. Thank God for those who have, having gone before you, can then tell you wisely don't stir it up or awaken it until it pleases. Okay. On to verses 6 to 11 in the second poem, which we have titled The Greater Than Solomon. And how it connects to what we just went over may not be so clear, so let's just walk through it now and do the best we can. Uh, the bride's attention quickly shifts in verse 6 to a spectacle rivaling the arrival of Aladdin. Okay. Uh, what is that, she says? Coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke Perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. With all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Her answer, verse 7, Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. She then proceeds to describe for us two things in verses 8 to 10. One, the excesses of his protective detail. Two, the royalty of his carriage. Okay? It is quite the spectacle. And still taken as part of the Bible's whole, there's much more than may at first meet the eye in this depiction of Solomon coming for his wedding. So, listen in here. Here is the anointed Davidic king coming up, like Israel, out of the wilderness, like those pillars of cloud and fire, columns, Of smoke. He's aromatic of temple fragrances. Myrrh and frankincense. And he's flanked by his loyal warriors of light. They fight against all the terrors of the night. And he's in a carriage that's designed to give off not just temple vibes, but even vibes of like the holy of holies. His seat is a throne. Framed, verse 10, in love. And just so, He's come from wilderness to wedding to marry His bride. It's the day of the gladness of His heart. It's a depiction of the Davidic king in divine glory. The spectacle is, we might say, of more than a man. More than a mere groom. And the bride charges those daughters of Zion here, don't miss it. (laughs) Go on out, she says. Verse 11. Look upon Solomon in all of his glory. And so we arrive at the big interpretive question of the song of songs. It's the key to it, really. Is Solomon the bride's beloved? Or is he the foil in the poem? That is, is Solomon the poetic contrast to someone or something else? If the former, if he is the bride's beloved, then chapter 3 is about their wedding. And the more suggestive scenes in chapters 1 and 2 were really just her, her longings, as innocent as they can be. And the more explicit chapter 4, which we're going to come to next week, is their wedding night, the consummation of their marriage, which is very, very plausible, if not even the majority view. But now if the latter, which is where I try to humbly land, chapters 1 and 2 are descriptions of love within an idealized marriage not involving Solomon at all. He is not this bride's beloved groom. Solomon is the songwriter who has, by this bride, respectfully set himself up as the foil in the poem. Even in this chapter, you need to see the contrasts between, as one put it, "quote the unprotected woman. Right? She's running all over the streets at night. The unprotected woman and the overly protected king. He's got like 60 mighty men, experts in war coming to the wedding with him. We need to see the contrast between the opulence attached to Solomon and his marriage versus the simple unadorned love between this woman and him whom my soul loves. We need to see the contrast between their basic obscurity to the whole thing versus this great spectacle. Solomon, as one scholar put it, I believe it was Dwayne Garrett, is not a character in the story, he says. He's a symbol in it. Remember, as I argued in chapter 1, I believe this is a song of Solomon's repentance. He's not the ideal groom. Isn't that one of the things with Solomon? (laughs) A thousand wives, princesses, concubines. He's not the ideal groom. He's the foil. And so to the question, foil to what? The answer, I think, is clear enough. He's the foil to this bride's husband and to the true spectacle of their marriage. In other words, for all of his greatness, she's saying, Solomon cannot compare with my man. Though he is technically unnamed, the bridegroom in the song is a greater solomon he may not be god's anointed king but he is her king chapter 1 verse 4 solomon needs all of that protection he's adorned in all of that opulence he gives the show of a divinely royal love but her groom as we've seen her groom protects her he opulently adorns her with a truly heavenly love. And so when all eyes are on the spectacle of Solomon's, I don't know, what, 693rd wedding, her one love, her one wedding, her one marriage, one man for life, what she's saying is that's the true spectacle. It may be utterly obscure when compared with Solomon's God-like theatrics. But while the world fixates on all of that, the smile of God is back on that chamber in the bride's mother's house. It's on the love shared in a gloriously faithful marriage. Or I'll put it this way. Is what I think the bride wants these daughters to see. The glory of God, the conquering redeemer, is more greatly displayed in the desperate love of a biblical marriage than in the wedding fireworks of the most extravagant Israelite king and type of Christ. Again, he had like 700 of them. That's not the idea. About this bridegroom being the better type of Christ, it seems like Solomon has set him up to show him that way. This wonderful, wise, one-woman lover, he's the better type of Christ than Solomon himself. And we need to take note of that. Now, let me add this to this all too briefly. Knowing in my own life the reality of a broken home, parents and spouses who divided, a marriage that did not showcase an enduring love like this love. I know that hearing these things, hearing things like this, can possibly open up old wounds, right? It can pick scabs. Uh, It can reproduce deep regret. It can pile on an already established pile of guilt and even uncertainty about how you relate to God and how God relates to you, what He thinks about you. So listen. Uh, Divorce uh, is never ideal. In a day when people marry under the auspices of, we'll see how it goes. When self-gratification is the rule of my personal devotion. When a Kardashian wedding becomes culturally definitive of irrelevance. When an actress is going about preaching, we were made to be sexually polygamous creatures. When serial dating is the norm, and relatedly divorce rates in the church virtually match those in the world. We must hear, however hard it is to hear, that divorce is never ideal, especially for followers of Jesus. He himself said to religious elites looking to justify their inglorious approach to marriage, what God has joined together, let not man separate. If that is a present consideration for you in your marriage, lawfully or not, I'd urge you, as you can, to come speak with me or somebody. And let's see if we can, by God's help, try to restore and refinish the bond that you do have as spouses. If that's a thing of your past, as in you have been divorced before, what we want to say is that it's not a thing Jesus cannot redeem. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's not some marginalizing stigma to us in terms of that distinguishing beauty called holiness, we want to be that city on a hill, but that doesn't mean that we uh, want to be in any way divorced from, from the cross of Calvary. Just the opposite. What we want to be is saved sinners ourselves who preach the grace of Christ to you. If you are Christ's, He is still and always happy to be yours. And everything the greatest Solomon was ever promised to be for you. Here's where I remind us then, dear ones, that the whole Bible is finally about the revelation of God in one person, Jesus Christ. And how this morning, in this chapter, our two poems with their related things come together as a bride Seeking her best husband. And the Davidic king arriving for his wedding. Isn't that wonderful? And I trust you can see Jesus in that. In fact, I hope you hear a lot of what Ellison read for us in the call to worship from Revelation chapter 19. There, it's John relaying a vision of Jesus to his bride. She, we, we have made ourselves ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb and its consummation. And as John says, heaven then opened. And there, there was one sitting on a white horse called Faithful and True, eyes like fire, crowned with many crowns. And though his name is veiled, it said there, he goes by another name that's not veiled, The word of God. And with him, guess what? Mighty men or something. Armies. Armies of heaven flanking him. But they're not his protective detail. No, he appears more than capable not to protect himself, but to protect and deliver his bride. And in the process to vindicate himself in the judgment of a harlot world that rejected his proposal made on bended knee and ultimately with bowed head. What a love the world by nature rejects. Unbelieving friend, you will not love the consequences of rejecting the love of one tattooed Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So don't. Don't reject him. In the end, the Song of Songs, chapter 3, is about seeking and finding, having and holding Him who came to seek and to find, to have and to hold sinners like you and me. To view our text from another angle, He, like the bride, went into the city of man, came into the city of man to find His bride at great cost to Himself while the world was fixated on its own brand of awesome glory, off on the side. And eventually, outside the city gate, the truest spectacle of marital love occurred on the cross. There, Jesus bore the wrath of God against us. That the smile of God, which belonged to Him alone, might be graciously, and permanently, forever, put upon us. And then he rose from the dead, and he took his place to reign, and he's reigning, and guess what? He's got a wedding to attend. He's going to return. You think Solomon is glorious here? Nothing's going to match what we see when Jesus comes. And so, friend, you must turn away from your sins and place your faith in this Jesus. You do that. You go to Him. Completely accessible. Solomon was inaccessible. Jesus, so accessible. Most accessible. As He is. He will reconcile you to God. He will save you from your sins. He will have you and He will hold on to you Forever. Man. Beloved, for the day, oh for the day, when that separation anxiety that we have right now, as His own, oh for the day, when that will be a thing of the eternal past. Sweet moment the other day, uh, I told my youngest child, who loves to go to her grandma's house, that we were in fact going to grandma's house. And she asked me in effect, Daddy, Uh, Once we're we're there, will you be leaving me? (laughs) And I said, no, honey, I'll be staying. I'm going to be there with you. To which she asked, because it's in our hearts from the beginning. Are you going to be with me forever? Of course, love. Forever. Well, what I said to reassure a three-year-old is most definitely true. When it comes to you and him whom your soul loves. Our faith will give way to sight. Our present separation will give way to final salvation. Our anxieties will give way to his assurances. And we'll take hold of him. And he, us... And we will be together forever. Here and now then, is Christ's love for us compelling our longing and looking for Him? Is our commitment clear to have and to hold Him, to be had and held by Him in all circumstances Till death do us meet. Are we greatly preferring. To be tied at his hip. Wherever he goes. I go too. For life. Let's take it to prayer. Lord we do. Love you. We confess not well enough. Please. Now. Let your perfect love cause our love for you, our longing for you, our looking for you to grow, to increase, to be insatiable. And in that, meet us and satisfy our souls. We ask it in Jesus' name.